0: Hello and welcome to episode two of TLT's Employment Law Podcast. I'm Jonathan Rennie, a partner and a member of TLT's UK-wide employment team, and I'm joined by Fraser Vando, a solicitor in our Glasgow office. Hi there. And we also have Sarah Skeen, an associate in our Bristol office. Hello. This podcast is our chance to help you spot the issues that are most important or challenging to get right, and also for us to share some useful insights and expert advice from across our national team. Today we're going to be answering questions like what is a philosophical belief and how does the Equality Act deal with this protected characteristic, and we're going to look at what issues HR and legal teams face when these beliefs arise in the workplace. But before we get started, we wanted to say a massive thank you very much for all of your positive comments on episode 1, which was on the Me Too movement and sexual harassment. It's really great to hear that you're finding the podcast to be useful and we look forward to answering some of your questions later in this episode. As I say, our main topic today is philosophical belief under the Equality Act and what happens when that protected characteristic Conflicts with other characteristics under the legislation. Before we look at that, firstly, Fraser has a roundup of the news.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. First of all, on Brexit, unfortunately, we we still don't have a, a clear position on that. With a change in, in Prime Minister coming in the next couple of weeks and, and the parliamentary summer holiday, it does seem like this is one that is going to rumble on until October at the very least. From an HR and people perspective, the positive news is that the, the EU settlement scheme is in operation and has been fully operational since the end of March. By all accounts, broadly speaking, it is working well and it is working as anticipated. There have been a couple of anomalies. You may have seen a recent press story where a couple with a pre-settled status, which is the status individuals can can achieve under the scheme when they haven't been resident in the UK for five years, they were refused entry onto a flight back to the UK and it took them 24 hours to, to actually have that position rationalised overseas. So it does throw up the question of whether pre-settled and settled status should should be a purely digital eh, status, as it currently is, or whether individuals should have you know, a residence permit or a stamp in their passport as physical proof. A couple of eh, case law developments since we were last with you as well. First of all, eh, the case of CCOO against Deutsche Bank. Eh, this was a, a European Court of Justice case, and it suggested that the provisions of the European Working Time Directive actually require a system of monitoring, you know, the actual precise number of hours worked by a worker. The UK working time regulations don't go that far. That only requires employers to have adequate records to show whether limits on a weekly working time and night work have been complied with. There are no specific requirements relating to records for a daily rest, weekly rest, or the actual number of hours worked. So it does throw up the question then of whether, you know, our working time regulations are actually compliant with, with what the EU requires in, in its directive. And I wonder, Jonathan, do we expect to see any any challenges in that respect anytime soon?
0: Yes, Razor, we'll need to wait and see how this one develops in practice and report back. I don't see it being so much of an issue for office workers where there might be clocking in and clocking out and, and that type of electronic record keeping but I can definitely see it as being more problematic or an issue for employers in perhaps the construction sector where there are mobile workers and, and employees are, are out and about. So um, watch this space.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. And just lastly, on on the news front, the government's consultation on maternity rights and, and enhanced rights on, on, on individuals' return from maternity leave has recently closed. Uh, lots of interesting stuff in there, including you know, the the idea of of perhaps extending the time limit for maternity discrimination claims from the current three months. We're going to have a look later on at at the issue of, you know, protected characteristics and whether perhaps there's a hierarchy developing in in the Equality Act where there are some circumstances where some characteristics will receive preference over others. And I'm just wondering whether, you know, this idea of of extending time limits for, for maternity claims could ultimately contribute to that. I mean, Sarah, what what do you think about the the content of the the consultation on in this area?
2: I think you're absolutely right. It's a it's a really interesting consultation, and actually, those on maternity leave have enhanced rights already. So, some of our listeners may be familiar with the fact that if you're on maternity leave during a redundancy process, you have a right to be offered an available vacancy um, in preference to somebody who's actually working at that time. And we know um, here that actually that right comes as quite a surprise to many of our clients. And I can see that issue from both sides. On the one hand, it does seem contrary to sort of sensible, logical business practice to offer somebody a role just because they're on maternity leave, when actually they might not be the best candidate for that position. But actually, if you look at it from the employee's perspective, statistics and quite surprising statistics bear out that women on maternity leave and mothers are much more likely to be made redundant than anybody else. Um, A charity, Maternity Action, estimate um, from their quite detailed research, in fact, that one in every 20 women on maternity leave are made redundant either during their pregnancy, their maternity leave or on their immediate return to work. And this surprising statistic, I think, runs contrary to the law in this area, But actually, what it does show is that there is still a culture of of discrimination, whether conscious or unconscious, of those who are pregnant and on maternity leave, which creates some real difficulties. So perhaps a change in the law um, beyond just the time limit would be welcome here.
0: Yes, I think that's right, Sarah. And sometimes it's not just the actual redundancy decision, but it can also be the timing of that decision that can be an issue for returning mothers. So... I certainly had a recent client experience acting for a a returning maternity case um, where the employer had waited until she returned from maternity leave and reduced her hours down to three days a week uh, to make her redundant in order to reduce the redundancy pay entitlement because she was essentially a a part-time worker. And you can see that some employers, particularly those facing financial difficulties, might approach Matters in that way. So it's an area that's fraught with difficulties, and I'm actually very pleased personally and professionally that the government have issued this consultation. So let's hope that the consultation results in positive change here and also enhanced protections for returning maternity cases. Let's move on now to talk about our main topic for today, philosophical beliefs under the Equality Act. Essentially, we're looking at what's protected under the law and what to do when these protected characteristics conflict with each other. This is an area that's received massive press attention in recent months and is often a protected characteristic that flies under the radar and isn't always one that is at the forefront of people's mind in the same way as, say, for example, age discrimination, disability discrimination, etc., However, as we've seen recently, it's an area where people can potentially be caught out. Given the fact that there is an uncapped compensation limit for discrimination claims, these type of claims can be very costly. So HR teams often find this a tricky area to advise on and it can be a high value one. So we will try and guide you through this. Before we get into the technical detail, there's a very practical and obvious point here that an employee can only release an employment tribunal claim where they can demonstrate that they have this protected characteristic. This preliminary point is often determined at a procedural tribunal hearing which is why we are discussing this today to give you some helpful hints on what to look out for. We also need to be very mindful that organisations will have for example dignity at work policies um, and anti-bullying policies so there is a wider point here beyond the Equality Act definitions. No doubt organisations will want to follow through on any of their internal policies, where, for example, someone is being bullied at work, and even where that is not an Equality Act-defined protected characteristic. I wanted to make that point because we're looking at the Equality Act definitions, but we need to be mindful of the fact that organisations often have policies over and beyond the Equality Act terms. So for starters then, what even is a philosophical belief? If I believe that there should be more bank holidays over the summer... Is that a philosophical belief? And what about fox hunting, Brexit, life after death? Who's protected? Sarah, have you any thoughts on this?
2: Well, actually, Jonathan, it's a bit of a minefield, um, this area, which is obviously why we are trying to to guide you through it uh, today. The Equality Act itself doesn't actually give us much guidance in this area, which, of course, would would be helpful. Um, If you have a religion, then you are protected. And in fact, even if you don't have a religion, you are protected but what is a philosophical belief? And actually this is a question that matters because if you don't have a philosophical belief, you're not legally protected from discrimination or harassment under the Equality Act. What we do know on the philosophical belief question is that the case law have tried to define what that is in the absence of a definition under the Equality Act and we've boiled it down to four key aspects as to what a philosophical belief is. Firstly, the belief must be genuine Now, to me, that sounds uh, pretty obvious. Why bother stating stating that as a requirement? But actually, what that point emphasises is that a tribunal doesn't have to agree that the belief is a valid one. It doesn't have to be supported by science. In fact, you can be the only person in the whole world who holds that belief, and you could still be protected, provided your belief is genuine. However, the claimant must be able to demonstrate that they genuinely believe in something, and it's not just a whim. So the second key aspect is that the person must actually have a belief, not just an opinion or a viewpoint. For this reason, supporting a political party is expressly not protected under the Equality Act definition. It's not seen as a belief. Similarly, an opinion about whether we should be inside or outside the European Union is not a belief, it's an opinion. But it's very much a fine line, as you can probably see. And actually, while supporting a political party is not protected... If you hold a particular political philosophy, so, for example, you have a strong belief um, in communism, then that may well be a belief and not just an opinion. It's very much shades of grey here, which I'm sure you'll appreciate lawyers tend to love. But the practical question to ask is whether the person's belief affects other areas of their life rather than on just one topic. If it's one topic, it's likely to be an opinion rather than a belief. The third key aspect very much follows on from that. And it's a requirement that the belief must be, and as the courts put it, a weighty and substantial aspect of human life and behaviour. Well, what is that? Well, it's very much a question that the courts have asked themselves um, quite a lot in case law. And the question in reality comes down to whether or not the belief affects the claimant's life and how they live it. So on this basis, a belief that lying is wrong has been found to be a philosophical belief. It's not just an opinion, it's something that was weighty and affected their life and behaviour and the claimant's life and behaviour in that case. The fourth and final key aspect here is that the belief must be worthy of respect in a democratic society and must not conflict with the rights of others. This is an interesting area and one which is rife for conflict, um, which we'll discuss in a moment. But going through each of these four tests um, is very much what the courts do when they're deciding whether something is a philosophical belief. And actually using those tests, the courts have concluded that a belief in climate change was a philosophical belief that should be protected. It was a genuinely held belief. It was a belief, not an opinion. And it was one that affected the individual's life and behaviour. And it didn't conflict with the rights of others.
1: It seems like what we've got then is... Is a sort of fairly basic definition under the Equality Act, but one where, given the case law, there's a huge amount of areas, beliefs that, that could actually be captured in practice.
2: That's absolutely right. You know, it, it's very much digging beneath the surface and having a look at what the case law says. And actually, when you come to it, it, it can be a relatively high hurdle to jump to show that you have a philosophical belief that is protected.
0: Yeah, I think the issue is that there's so many areas of the definition that are up for debate. For example, case law from 2013, I think it was the case of Ellis versus Parmesan, focused on an individual's beliefs that homosexuality is contrary to God's law and that the Holocaust did not take place. This was found by a tribunal not to be protected because it was in conflict with the fundamental rights of others and was based on a distorted approach of the evidence available regarding the Holocaust. However, the fact that the tribunal have to go through these minute details and look at how they've impacted on an individual's life means that there is a factual analysis for each of these cases that needs to be explored. That's right. So this idea of conflicting with the rights of others is one that we will talk about in a moment. And it's been very much highlighted by a sports case, the rugby case involving the Australian rugby union player Israel Folau, albeit his case was not determined under the UK Equality Act. Evidently, as this discussion shows, we can end up in ethical and moral arguments in some of these cases, and the law is not always very precise in categorising and protecting beliefs. It can depend on how an individual follows through on those beliefs and their ability before a tribunal to demonstrate that in their evidence, to reflect the fact that they have such fundamental and intrinsic beliefs, and basically how they live their life according to those values.
2: That's right. It's, it's very much um, case-specific. There have been a number of high-profile cases, though, involving philosophical belief, haven't they? And I think it's a potentially, it's quite a divisive area. So I seem to remember there was a fairly recent case involving Scottish independence with two Scotsmen in the room. What's what's your view on that?
0: OK, so this was the case McElhaney against the Ministry of Defence and an interesting one around some of these points around fine distinctions between opinions and, and beliefs, which you've discussed already, Sarah. So Mr McElhaney was a councillor and he signalled his intention to stand for the deputy leadership of the Scottish Nationalist Party. And he wanted to reflect the fact that this was a philosophical belief because he said he was subjected to a detriment by the Ministry of Defence when he indicated that he was going to stand for this position. And the Glasgow Employment Tribunal actually found that his philosophical belief in nationalism was worthy of protection and was a philosophical belief. And it was held to have a cogency or a seriousness similar to religious belief and was therefore protected under the Equality Act. So clearly critics of this, and there were many critics, were saying that the individual simply supported a political party, but the tribunal didn't see it that way. They saw it as his belief in nationalism, as being distinct from his support of a particular political party. Now, clearly that meat might seem like hair splitting and raises various questions, but I can see how the tribunal formed that view because the individual was very compelling as to how this impacted on his life and how he chose to live.
2: Yeah, you're you're right. I mean, it occurred to me in some of the the recent press around veganism that actually this could be an issue within this context. So the vegan society say that the demand for vegan food grew by 987%, if that is a percentage, in oh. 2017 and 2018. And the UK's launched more vegan products than any other country in the world. And if veganism was found to be a philosophical belief, that could have a quite a wide impact too, couldn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. As you say, particularly in the last couple of years, veganism seems to be quite quickly on the rise and there is actually an ongoing case testing this this very point as we speak been pretty well publicized not not just in the hr press but also you know mainstream media because of the popularity that that veganism is attracting at the minute the case is actually listed for later this year and the claimant in that case is arguing that he is what he terms an ethical vegan so his position is that he doesn't simply just follow a plant-based diet but that he has a much wider philosophical belief about the relationship between humans and their interactions with animals the case ties in with a quite recent research that suggests almost half of people who identify as being vegan believe they've been discriminated against at work and only one-fifth of employers according to other research offer vegan options in canteens it should be pointed out that the employer in this case is saying the individual's dismissal had absolutely nothing to do with veganism but as jonathan mentioned earlier on this is a, a preliminary issue so it is entirely possible that we could still find the door opened to claims based on veganism and for for the tribunal to hold that veganism in this particular circumstance is a philosophical belief that that can potentially be protected
2: I think the case law and the upcoming cases such as the one Fraser was just talking about show quite how varied that definition of philosophical belief is and can be. And I think what that means um, for you as an employer or as a HR professional is that it's just an area to to watch out for and make sure you're not being caught out on. Now, of course, you're not going to lose a claim if you dismiss somebody who happens to be a vegan, But if they have that philosophical belief, then they may try to assert that their dismissal was because of that or linked to it in some way. And if you are caught out, it could be costly, given that as a reminder, discrimination compensation is uncapped. It's one to keep an eye out for, I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think in practice, the point to think about is ensuring that the reaction of HR and and managers to a strongly held belief is an objective one. I think, in my experience dealing with clients, there can be a tendency to think that an employee with a fundamental belief is somehow being difficult or deliberately awkward simply by reason of them being assertive about those beliefs. So, if this does come up in practice, I think it's absolutely worth HR and contacts taking the time to listen and understand the employee's position, even if you don't agree with it rather than making fast assumptions and preferring one interest over another. So in this regard, having clear policies about how your business handles discrimination and bullying at work will be really, really important. So we're now going to take a look at the issue of what happens when there is a conflict between certain characteristics that are protected under the Equality Act This quite often comes up when religious or philosophical beliefs conflict with another protected characteristic. By now, most of you will have heard about the so-called gay cake case where a Christian bakery in Northern Ireland refused to produce a cake containing a message in support of gay marriage. And there have been other examples of this in recent times. Fraser, I think you can tell us a little bit about the rugby case, for example.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a case that's received quite a high level of press coverage in the UK. As we said earlier, it's not a UK case, it's not one that's that's governed by the Equality Act, but the principles of it resonate quite well with the UK legislation. So it relates to the now former uh, Australian rugby player Israel Folau. He is a devout Christian and posted on his Instagram, and I quote... Hell awaits drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists and idolaters. Now, in the UK, because sexual orientation is a protected characteristic under the Equality Act, that's where the vast majority of the focus of these comments has been placed. And this type of case just shows the type of tensions that, that that can potentially arise. And if you look at it in the abstract, it's clear to see why, because on the one hand, religion and belief is a protected characteristic under the Act. Individuals should not be less favourably treated because of their religion or belief. And Falal was a devout Christian, and, and if you look at it from the other perspective sexual orientation is protected. When you have areas like this where there is a fundamental conflict between these characteristics, it it quite easily becomes an area that's difficult to to rationalise and practice. Sarah, how have you seen this develop?
2: I mean, you're right. It, It really is a difficult area. And as you say, it's one that's inevitably going to leave one party dissatisfied. Ultimately though, although the law does protect those who hold religious beliefs, it doesn't give them carte blanche to express those beliefs regardless of the impact that those beliefs might have on others. And it's certainly possible that the expression of certain religious views in the workplace could amount to unlawful harassment and it would be reasonable then for an employer to take action if that was the case. But there will inevitably be a very delicate balance to be struck and human rights issues could be brought into play there's also a danger, I think, of creating a hierarchy of protected characteristics, effectively suggesting that some uh, protected characteristics are more worthy of protection than others, which certainly isn't what the Equality Act intends. And it's that interaction, I think, between religious views and homosexuality where this um, crops up most regularly um, in the courts So we've seen cases where a Christian registrar was dismissed for refusing to carry out his duties in relation to uh, conducting civil partnerships. That dismissal was found to be non-discriminatory because the registrar's um, approach to this conflicted directly with the employer's equality policies. So that dismissal was fair and non-discriminatory. There was also a similar case where a Christian relationship counsellor was dismissed for refusing to provide sexual counselling to same-sex couples. Again, this was non-discriminatory in the view at the tribunal. The employer had pledged an equal opportunities view to the public and um, the councillor's position was contrary to that. Now, that's not to say that all cases have necessarily been found in favour of the employers. Indeed, there was a tribunal case where a Christian was found to have been discriminated against for expressing her views on homosexuality to a lesbian colleague. I think that case can be uh, slightly stood apart because the issue was that the employee was dismissed on the basis of their beliefs rather than the inappropriate manifestation of those beliefs. What I mean by that is if you have employees inappropriately manifesting their beliefs such that they are harassing or discriminating against others, it is appropriate to take action in those cases following your own policies and, and whilst remaining sensitive to the beliefs of others. You know, it it can be difficult in practice. You don't want to prefer one interest over the other. And having clear policies um, will certainly help you in that regard.
0: I think the rugby case there was really one where social media heightened the focus on the discrimination issues. And certainly often when clients get in touch with me around discrimination and competing beliefs, it is because they've identified some form of social media posting. Obviously, sports an area where employment and discrimination issues come to the fore And that's in part because of that social media and profile phenomenon. And of course, social media can be quite compelling evidence in many employment discrimination cases. But again, the practical point being that full investigation of all the context of such postings should be carried out by HR teams to get the fullest picture before rushing to take decisions here.
2: Absolutely. Whether you're a high profile sports person or just a a normal person like the rest of us, what you say on social media can and does in in my experience really often form the basis of a discrimination claim in the workplace um, and employers need to be to be very aware of that.
1: Yeah I think the real crux of the issue on, on this particular topic is you know whether or not restricting how someone can voice their beliefs or the action that an employer takes for you know expressing their views on a particular topic can be justified and that essentially comes down to whether you know an employer's response is a proportionate one you know has an employer balanced the rights of everyone applied their policies in a fair and proportionate manner to achieve the outcome
2: yeah this is an area where the cases are won and lost was an employer's reaction a proportionate one it's the legal test but really we're looking at it practically and saying are you being balanced in the way that you're handling these issues
0: thanks very much both I think as we've discussed there, this can be a tricky area in practice and it'll be very interesting to see if this idea of a hierarchy of protections under the Equality Act actually develops over time, which I think it might very well do. Finally, we'd asked you to send in your questions during our last episode and we're going to finish up by looking at a couple of those just as a little reminder, you can submit your questions to EMP Law Podcast at TLT or please do tweet us using the hashtag TLT Employment Podcast and tagging at TLT underscore employment. Any questions you submit will, of course, be addressed anonymously. Fraser, I have a question for you which has come in. Obviously, we mentioned US style love contracts in our first episode. And a listener has asked, is that actually really happening in the UK? And if so, is it a sign of things to come with US influences into UK employment law?
1: I think it definitely is something that's that's happening. Clients, in my experience, aren't using the, the US term of, of love contract, but we are definitely seeing an increase in relationships at work policies. A key focus on the policies that, that I have seen is this issue of of a relationship between individuals who are at different levels of of management or an organisation's hierarchy. So, if there is a position where one individual could theoretically have power and influence over another, employers are keen to ensure that that is you know, a fully consensual relationship and that there's not influence being exerted. In terms of whether this is the start of US employment law infiltrating the system we have in the UK... I personally don't think so. The system of employment law here is very different to the system in the States. So I think this is a a pretty much one-off.
0: That's great to hear, Fraser. Sarah, we've also had someone ask for our thoughts on the Chancellor's announcement that he wants to increase the national minimum wage in the UK to £9.61 per hour, which would actually be the world's highest. What are you finding that employers are saying about that?
2: Well, the national living wage at the moment is £8.21 per hour. So we are talking about quite a sizeable jump here. And if we're looking at someone working 40 hours across the week, um, that difference is nearly £3,000 more more per year gross. Now, I'm sure someone currently earning uh, the living minimum wage would be delighted to hear this. But, But we are hearing employers saying, you know, we can't afford this. It's very much out of step with previous wage increases and employers are already facing um, an uncertain economy with low productivity. And um, our clients are telling us that they're already shouldering quite significant costs and burdens because of other employment law changes, specifically um, auto enrolment and pension contributions rising. And this actually, from their perspective, is just a step too far for business. We do sometimes see large organisations adjusting their wider benefits packages when basic wages go up. So some ancillary benefits can well be impacted. So it's clearly more to this than just a question of uh, basic hourly rates of pay.
0: Thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It sounds like a wonderful idea in practice, but businesses will no doubt be concerned about the additional cost that it will bring. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks very much again for joining us. We really appreciate hearing your feedback and your ideas for future episodes. So please do take a moment to review and to share our podcast and to get back in touch with us. We'll be back in a few weeks when we will look at some common employment law issues that arise during the summer months. So remember, please do subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out. Until then, goodbye. The information in this podcast is for general guidance only and represents our understanding of the relevant law and practice at the time of recording. We recommend you seek specific advice for specific cases. Please visit our website for our full terms and conditions.